We'll be reading out of Romans 1. Um, Our text is going to be verses 16 and 17, but we're going to read up to that. Uh, But first, I do have a a short introduction. Originally, I had titled this message, Are You Ashamed of the Gospel? However, the more time I spent considering these two verses, verses 16 and 17, the more overwhelmed I was by the implications of what Paul describes here as the power of God. Therefore, I've entitled this message, The Gospel, The Power of God Displayed. Brethren, we live in a time uh, where we're surrounded by uh, a pride, right? Formally surrounded by pride. We have pride flags. We have pride month. Uh, The culture has been cultivated all around us, and it seeks to eradicate every vestige of conscience-invoked shame over our fleshly and disordered appetites. In other words... Um, everything that God has created us to feel shame over, we live in a culture that seeks to debase that and push that down. However, being made uh, in the image of God, being uh, image bearers of God, and still obtaining remnants of his communicable attributes, his sense of justice and, and, and holiness, uh, we as a society are compelled to designate certain beliefs and act- actions as shameful. In other words, this behavior is unavoidable because we're created to behave this way. So as pride swells in a culture, uh, the things that God hates will be loved and the things that God loves will be hated. In fact, the more man-exalting pride swells in a society, the more biblically-derived conclusions and actions will be deemed shameful. If you're asked about your opinion about homosexuality, sodomy, and you respond biblically, even without commentary, simply biblically, right? An attempt will be made to make you feel shame. And to that, you can add a number of other things now, right? The number of genders, the definition of marriage, abortion, and now even for some of you, your skin color is something that our society demands that you feel shame over. This stratosphere-reaching level of hubris is the very environment in which Paul writes these verses that we're going to look at here today. And so, 2,000 years ago, other side of the world, different language, different culture, however, uh, there is a great similarity in that they were a dominant world power, Rome was, who had reached the heights of excess by having everything, the gifts of God, essentially, and pride had swelled. That is the environment, that is the culture that Paul writes this to. He's writing to the church in Rome, but this is what surrounds them, okay? So turn with me to Romans 1. I'm going to read again up to verse 16 and 17, but I, I want to read his introduction because I want you to see Paul's heart. He shares it with the church. I want you to see where he's coming from as we come up to these verses here. Hear the words of the Lord now. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God, which he had promised afore by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead by whom we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name among whom all are ye all also called of Jesus Christ to all that be in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from, our, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So right from the beginning, 
as he's writing to this church, he starts off with the gospel, the historicity of the gospel, the foretelling of the Messiah, the lineage of him, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. That's how he starts off this letter. And then verse 8, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son, that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers, making request, if by any means, now at length, I might have a prosperous journey by the will of God to come unto you. So he mentions that their allegiance to God is known all over the known world, right? So that's very important that we keep that in mind as we jump into our text today, that he's not writing to a weak church. He's writing to the church in Rome that is known all around the world for their faithfulness to the Lord, and he's sharing with them that his desire is to be there with him, the way that we've gathered today. Paul says he wants to be there physically with them. He wants to deliver these words to him physically. Verse 11, for I long to see you, that I may impart unto you some spiritual gift to the end ye may be established. That is, that I may be comforted together with you by the mutual faith both of you and me. Now I would not have you ignorant, brethren, that oft times I purposed to come unto you, but was let hitherto that I might have some fruit among you also, even as among other Gentiles. So he's wanting to come visit them, but God has providentially hindered him. Verse 14, I am a debtor both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, barbarians, both to the wise and the unwise. So as much as is in me, I am ready to preach the gospel to you that are at Rome also. All right, so right before we get to our text, keep in mind his great desire, Paul's great desire is to physically be with this church, this strong church, and he wants to give them the gospel, right? He's a debtor to the Greeks and the barbarians. He is a missionary to the the Gentiles. He is absolutely preaching to the lost. But his great desire right now is to preach the gospel to converted people. In verse 16, he says, this is our text for today, 16, 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also the Greek, for therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Our Lord and our God, oh Father, we are so grateful for your word. We are so grateful, Father, that while we loved our sins, you were kind to us, Father, and through the power of the gospel, you have called us by name and washed us in the blood of Christ, Lord. Now, Father, exalt your Son, exalt your name, exalt the Spirit, Father, as we gather Speak to us through your word, Father. Show us Christ. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So I have three points for you today. The first point is the propensity to be ashamed of the gospel. The propensity to be ashamed of the gospel. I'll give you guys a moment to write that down. Those of you who are being holy this morning. Second point. The gospel, the demonstrated, observable power of God. The gospel, the demonstrated, observable power of God. 
And then the third point, access to God's power by faith. Access to God's power by faith. The propensity to be ashamed of the gospel. I want you to think back for a moment to the time when God first saved you. For some of you, that's rather recently. For others, it's been some time. The time when God revealed to you the depth of your sin, the wickedness, the wretchedness that you drank in like water and enjoyed all of your life until the time you saw the reality of it, and Jesus Christ became precious to you. I would say for most of us, not all of us, sometimes all the justification happens at a moment. For some of us, it was a slow revelation. But for many of us, it was a night and day change, right? We were in some sort of uh, cage stage, if you will. That's not exclusive to Reformed theology. Uh, Others have called it being on fire for the Lord. I don't know if you've heard that term before. Uh, I think that's a good way to describe it. We feel a deep, burning passion for the gospel of Jesus Christ. We want his name to be known to every person that we care about or know. The fire burns bright and is often seen by those around us. But then, the long process of sanctification begins, and the fire, the passion, can at times wane. We have confidence that God, who has begun a good work in us, will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. But the Christian life is one of peaks and valleys. We can become ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, the dictionary defines shame as a painful feeling of humiliation or distress caused by the consciousness of wrong or foolish behavior. One more time. A painful feeling of humiliation or distress caused by the consciousness of wrong or foolish behavior. And I'll add uh, foolish behavior or beliefs. Okay, that's a little closer to the context we're looking at here. A demonstration, an example of this from the scriptures. Uh, turn with me to John chapter 18. We'll be, with, we'll be there for just a moment. John chapter 18. Verse 10 says, Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and smote the high priest's servant, the high priest's servant, and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Then said Jesus unto Peter, Put up thy sword into the sheath. The cup which my father hath given me, shall I not drink it? So you guys are quite familiar with that scenario, I imagine. Uh, the Garden of Gethsemane, Judas has just betrayed our Lord and Savior with a kiss. And as the, the chief priest's guards come in to take Jesus, Peter, being full of zeal, draws his sword and cuts off the, the guard Malchus's ear, right? Now, it doesn't give us a description of how that took place. But in my mind, I find it strange that he just lopped off his ear. It makes sense in my mind that he was trying to take his head off. And as Malchus reared back, he got his ear. I don't know that to be the case, but it seems logical to me. In other words, Peter was ready to take on anybody. He was ready to die at this moment, okay? He was ready. There's no shame right there, right? No shame at all. But read just a couple of verses further up, verse 15. This is a short time later. It's just, it's, they've just taken Jesus. Verse 15, and Simon Peter followed Jesus. And so did another disciple that so did another disciple. That disciple was known unto the high priest, and he went in with Jesus into the palace of the high priest. So he's gone into the courtyard, and Peter's on the outside. 
But Peter stood at the door without. Then went out that other disciple, which was known unto the high priest, and spake unto her that kept the door. This was a young girl here, and brought in Peter. Then saith the damsel that kept the door unto Peter, Art not thou also one of the man's disciples? Right? Aren't you one of Jesus' disciples? He saith, I'm not. And the servants and the officers stood there who had made a fire of coals, for it was cold, and they warmed themselves, and Peter stood with them and warmed himself. Can you imagine that sense of awkwardness and shame, what he's just done? So he's standing there warming himself by the fire as he's just denied even knowing Jesus Christ. Go down to verse 25. Again, and Simon Peter stood and warmed himself. They said, therefore, unto him, Art not thou also one of his disciples? He denied it. He said, I'm not. And one of the servants now of the high priest, being a kinsman whose ear Peter cut off, this is Malchus's cousin or relative here, saith, Did I not see thee in the garden with him? Peter then denied again, and immediately what happens? Here's the rooster, right? The cock crew. Peter was ashamed of the gospel. He was ashamed of what his affiliation with Jesus Christ brought. Remembered just moments before, he was ready to fight to the death, okay? This is important. What in the world happened to Peter? Just moments earlier, earlier, he's ready to fight to the death, and now he is ashamed to even be associated with Jesus. I would submit to you that Peter's expectations of, if, if you will, the Christian life, right, following Christ, for us, it'd be the Christian life. His, his expectations were devastated, right? We know that when Jesus revealed to Peter that he must go up and die, Jesus rebuked, I mean, Peter rebuked Jesus, and then Jesus rebuked him, saying, get behind me, Satan. He did not want this. This is, what, this is not what Peter expected, right? He did not expect Jesus to be arrested this way. Peter had visions of being at the right hand of Christ as he triumphantly took David's throne and vanquished all of Judah's enemies. This wasn't supposed to happen. Following Jesus was not supposed to go this way. Are we not the same way, brothers and sisters? We are Christians, right? Our marriages should be easier. That's what we think. Although we might not think those words, we we practically live our lives like that, right? We're Christians. Our marriages should be easier. Lord, would you just fix my spouse so everything could be okay? Right? We're Christians. Parenting should be easier. Why won't you just go to sleep, child? We shouldn't have the struggles with finances, with coworkers, with neighbors like we do. Okay, listen, we recognize the prosperity, the so-called prosperity gospel as being the heresy that it is. But when our ideas of how life should go aren't realized, we can be discouraged And that is when we are vulnerable to becoming ashamed of the gospel. At at the moment when what we expect this Christian life to be doesn't come out the way we think it should, we're vulnerable to being ashamed of the gospel. 
well. The gospel, point two, is the demonstrated, observable power of God. But Paul says what? He is not ashamed of the gospel. But Paul does not leave us with this statement alone. He tells us the reason he's not ashamed. For it is the power of God unto salvation. I want to read you an excerpt from The Life and Letters of St. Paul by J.W. Shepard. The theme of the Roman epistle, Paul's magnum opus, must needs be his most complete single expression of the missionary message of Christianity. Okay? It is a clear statement of the plan of salvation for all mankind being condensed into the masterly, ingenious thoughts of the apostle to the Gentiles within these incredibly two short verses, Romans 16 and 17. Every word in the two verses play a vital role. There is not included which is superfluous, nor ought excluded which naturally pertains. It is the highest example of Christian thinking, being the sublimest peak of Paul's logical dialectic expression, capped by the light of intuitive religious inspiration. Now, I thought that was an incredible statement. Now, I was even more amazed after I looked up about what half of those words meant. Superfluous. Can't even say it. The author here is stating that the height of Christian thought is setting your mind to believe the gospel. That is the the pinnacle of Christian thought. It's not in contemplating the differences between superlapsarianism and infralapsarianism. It's not in determining your stance on single or double predestination. It's not in considering if God's omniscience is solely based on his omnipotence or it's an individual characteristic of his. The height of Christian thought is believing the gospel in a way that produces action that is free of the effects of societal shame. Say that again. The height of Christian thought is believing the gospel in a way that produces action that is free of the effects of societal shame that will be attempted to be pushed upon you. Consider for a moment who is saying this, right? It's important to understand the one God has used to say this. Paul, the Pharisee of Pharisees. A Roman citizen, a member of the Sanhedrin, Paul, a man who had every societal and institutional reason to be ashamed. It's like Paul stating, I have climbed every prestigious institution of our society. I've obtained notoriety and respect from all of my peers. I've had the good fortune to be able to become a Roman citizen. And now I count that all as loss as I have yoked myself to a lowly Jewish rabbi who was poor, who was not formally educated, a man who was publicly shamed and met with the most undignified and shameful death, crucified naked in front of all the world as the worst type of criminal, we'd say the worst type of felon. Paul had every reason from man's perspective to be greatly ashamed. But he emphatically declares that he is not ashamed of the gospel. But why? 
Is Paul some type of super Christian? A double Christian? We're prone to think this way, aren't we? Am I mistaken in that? Don't we think like that sometimes? I mean, I do. I, I know that's wrong, but I tend to think well, it's Paul, right? I mean, he wrote half the New Testament. Certainly, if God used me to do something like that, I wouldn't be ashamed of the gospel, right? Not so, brothers and sisters. Paul tells us why he's not ashamed, and it has zero to do with what Paul has done. Paul tells us why he's not ashamed, and it has nothing to do with what Paul has done. And it has everything to do with what God has done. Paul says he is not ashamed of the gospel, for it is what? For it is what? That's a weak power, guys. He's not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God. Exactly. Thank you. Power is translated from the Greek word dunamis. That's where we get our English words dynamite, dynamo, dynamic. The outline of biblical usages are, this is the semantic range inside of the scriptures, strength, power, ability, inherent power, power residing in a thing by virtue of, by virtue of its nature, or which a person or thing exerts and puts forth. <clears throat> power for performing miracles. Moral power and excellence of soul. The power and influence which belong to riches and wealth. Power and resources arising from numbers. And lastly, power consisting in or resting upon armies, forces, and hosts. Now, that is not the full range of meaning and power in this passage. But I bring this up. I want to point this out to you because where do all of those forms of power reside? They reside in our king, right? The one behind this gospel. Access to all of that power comes through the gospel and is given by the God who possesses all of this power. All these definitions, they fall short, but they definitely include this, right? Right? Other places in Scripture where we see this word is in Matthew 6.13, in the Lord's Prayer. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever, amen. Matthew 22.29, Jesus said unto them, Ye do err, not knowing the Scriptures, nor the power of God. Mark 13.26, And then shall they see the Son of Man going in the clouds with great Power and glory. You guys are getting it. And finally, Luke 4, 36. And they were all amazed and spoke among the unclean... I'm sorry. They were all amazed and spoke among themselves, saying, What a word is this? For with authority and power, he commands the unclean spirit, and they come out. Now, if I were to ask you, in all of the scriptures, what is the greatest demonstration of God's power? The greatest supernatural event or miracle, what would you say? God speaking the universe into existence comes to mind. How about the 10 plagues, the parting of the Red Sea, the sun standing still in the sky? Although these types of miraculous events are, are rare throughout history, um, there's enough of them in the scriptures that we could make a list. Uh, if you were to make a list, 
would the gospel be on this list? Definitely, I would imagine the resurrection of Christ would be there. But the gospel itself, would it be on your list? Is this how we think of the gospel? Because Paul certainly does. This is the very reason he gives us as to why he is not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God unto salvation. The power to take a dead slave of sin. Trapped in the miry clay. Dead and not knowing it. The power to take a dead slave of sin and make them a righteous son or daughter of the king. This is the power that Paul speaks of that can do that. Brothers and sisters, are we mindful? Are we actively conscious of the power we wield when we proclaim the gospel? Or are we embarrassed and ashamed? How tragic is it that we can be embarrassed of the very source of power by which we can overcome our embarrassment. Read the two again. How tragic is it that we can be embarrassed of the very source of power by which we can overcome our embarrassment? The very source of power that turns the world upside down. The power that God uses to exalt and debase world powers and nations. It's available to us. He's given it to us. Now, access to God's power by faith. When going through these two verses here, I felt that there was so much in both of those verses that each one of them really needed their own sermon. But... I couldn't stop at 16 because in verse 17 tells us by, which means we put this into practice. So um, I don't have time to fully give 17 the time it deserves, but I would encourage you to consider it even on your own. Verse 17 reads, For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Now, the word translated righteousness is decay asune. It shares a root with another Greek word we often translate justified or justification. So it was also stated in some of the commentaries that I read that um, the righteousness of God would be better understood by us as the righteousness from God. So Verse 17 would read, For therein is the righteousness from God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. So understanding the, the definition of that word, um, God's righteousness given, his justification or being justified, that given through the gospel. In other words, what Paul is telling us here is, he is not ashamed of the gospel because it, because it is the power of God and contains Jesus Christ's righteousness and perfect keeping of the law that is imputed unto him by the object of his faith, being Jesus Christ, right? He's not ashamed of the gospel because it is the very perfect obedience of Jesus Christ's life applied to him, given to him, so that when you're in Christ, 
We, we all know this, but consider when we're in Christ, absolutely our sins are forgiven. Every wretched thought, word, or deed was laid on Christ as though he had done those things. But our sin debt is not at zero, right? We're not, we're not at zero. We are 100% righteous as though we lived Christ's life and never sinned a day in our life. Sins of commission or sins of omission. He always perfectly did everything he was supposed to be. And Paul is telling us that he's not ashamed of the gospel because that righteousness of Christ is applied to him and it's applied to you. That perfect crediting of the law, that's what empowers him. So my dear brothers and sisters, we are not to be ashamed of the gospel because it contains the very power of God that has erased our sin debt Even the sin of being ashamed of the gospel, stated another way, or before I get to there, this is interesting. I I didn't mention this earlier, but when, when we read the account of Peter, it is interesting that God in his mercy took Peter's shame, right? He was ashamed of his affiliation with Jesus Christ, that he was his disciple. And through God's mercy, and through, he spoke through a rooster, right? Speak through a rooster, he placed Peter's shame from his affiliation with Jesus Christ to what? Became ashamed of his sin, didn't he, at that moment? The goodness of God. So, my dear brothers and sisters, we are not to be ashamed of the gospel because it contains the very power of God that has erased our sin debt and even the sin of being ashamed of the gospel. Stated another way, how do you learn to swim? An analogy here. By getting into the water, right? Water that wouldn't be over your head. What if you said you couldn't get into a pool to learn to swim because you didn't know how to swim? It doesn't make any sense, does it? So go back to our third point. Access to God's power by faith. How do you access God's power when your faith is small? when you feel a sense of intimidation or shame concerning the gospel? How do we do that? Get in the pool. Get in the pool. Trust by faith that the words of God are true even when you have to confess to God that you don't believe them with the faith that you know you should. Confess, right? Believe. We've often said in family worship, talking about these things, three of the words that our culture gets so wrong are love, believe, and faith. And so when it comes to belief, biblical belief produces action. There is no such thing in the Bible as belief that is simply intellectual. It definitely can, it contains an intellectual component. Of course, you must believe this thing to be factual. But if you believe it biblically, it absolutely will produce action. And if it does not, it is not biblical belief. Uh, Ray Comfort illustrates that wonderfully when he talks about uh, skydiving. Okay? It's one thing to say, I believe that a parachute can save you if you jump out of a plane. But you believe it when you put it on and you jump out of a plane. You can really mean that you believe parachutes will save you as you're sitting here or sitting wherever. But there is a volitional belief 
as you trust your life to it. That is the belief that we're talking about here. Access to God's power by faith. How do you access God's power? When your faith is small, when you feel a sense of intimidation or shame concerning the gospel, get in the pool. Trust by faith that the word of God, uh, the words of God are true, even when you have to confess to God that you don't believe them uh, with a faith that you know you should. Trust that he will grow your faith and obedience. You have been given this power not only by having your sins paid for by the death, burial, and and resurrection of Jesus Christ, but by being clothed in Jesus Christ's perfect righteousness. I mentioned that earlier. Um, That is the invigorating energy in the gospel is that we are as righteous because of Christ as Christ, right? Not in ourselves. You are justified before a holy God. Now live your life in light of this reality. Believe it by faith. Live in empowered life. God has done all the work. Now believe it. Paul says he's not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the power of God into salvation for all who believe. I didn't get into uh, for the Jew first and also for the Greek, that is the Jews and the Gentiles, everybody else. That is what it means in the context of uh, the verse there. Uh, If we took it across a principalizing bridge and applied it to us, we might say to the religious, the unconverted religious, and to the the hedonistic, um, that is the means by which God's power is displayed. So applications. I have three applications for you. Preach the gospel to yourself regularly and repent when necessary. Preach the gospel to yourself regularly and repent when necessary. This is Christianity 101, brothers and sisters. We are clearly instructed to move from milk to solid food, but we never get past the gospel. We never get past it. It's inexhaustible. We never plumb its depths. There's never a time in the Christian life where you've become so sanctified that you no longer need the gospel as actively being contemplated and applied to your life, right? That's certainly what Paul is telling us. It's the power of God into salvation. I know so many, myself included, growing up in a, in a general anemic version of Christianity, believe that uh, the gospel is some sort of thing that you make a, a mental ascent to and then you, you're done with it. Now it's off to bigger and better things, but we are never to get over the gospel. Preach the gospel to yourself regularly and repent when necessary. Number two, be willing to have God place you in situations where apart from God's strength, you would have a propensity to be ashamed of the gospel. Again, be willing God's going to, he's got sovereign, right? Amen. He's going to do what we need. He's often going to do things that are kind of uncomfortable at times, but we need. So when I say be willing, I'm talking about your attitude towards what God is doing, okay? He's going to do what he's going to do. He's a perfect father. But be willing to have God place you in situations where, apart from God's strength, you would have a propensity to be ashamed of the gospel. 
allow God, again, God does what he wants. This is your orientation. Allow God to show his strength to you on a personal level, okay? I hesitated about bringing anything up personally from my life because I do not want to be an example by any means. I am good at being a bad example and showing the grace and mercy of God. But if I could just share something experientially with this, it is, you know, that uh, I have joined with many brothers in preaching in front of abortion mills. And it's scary. And you don't ever get rid of your flesh. It's always there. I'm, in fact, when, when first burdened for this, I, 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 was, I remember thinking, that those are the weird people that go out and do that, right? I saw the need for it. Throughout all of church history, Jesus Christ himself, open-air preaching was a, a regular thing. But it just seems so uncool, right? Uncool. But I tell you, brothers and sisters, that you're going to have your own thing. For me, that was one of them. God has displayed his power time and time again because of my weakness, because of my propensity to be ashamed of such an uncool uh, application of his word. Does that make sense? Be willing to have God place you in situations where apart from God's strength, you would have a propensity to be ashamed of the gospel, allow God to show his strength to you on a personal level. And I would just add that to show his strength in areas where you're weak. That's typically how he does it, right? I've heard it said, I'm cautious with cliche Christianity, but he doesn't call the equipped, he equips the called. That's true. Most of the things that you will find that the Lord blesses uh, that you have a burden for are things that will not be able to be attributed to you, right? The things that you have success in for the Lord, it's obvious the Lord is working through there. So be willing, have a willing heart in that. And the third application, have scheduled, regular, um, specified times where you pray that God would lead you into these situations, okay? Make it a point. To, to have this regular time that you are petitioning the Lord to grow you in these areas. Scheduled, regular, specific times where you pray that God would lead you into these situations. I tell you, for many of us, um, it is the hardest to share the gospel with those who are the closest with us, especially if we spend many years with them, family members prior to conversion. They know us, Right? There's always that trepidation of being called a hypocrite. Or they, they know, you know, what we are like. Um, I'll remind you, I'll recall you back to Paul's words, that it's the gospel. It's the power of God and salvation. That is the very means, right? There's nothing shiny about it. It's not with great oratory skills. It's not with, um, you see all of the, the silliness on television with the leg growing and all these fake miracles, all the things that dazzle your eyes. No, it's the gospel, right? God has chosen the foolish things of this world to confound the wise. And he's placed his power, his omnipotent, life-giving power into the gospel. The story of Jesus Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection on the cross, his ascension to the right hand of the Father, his return That is the power, brothers and sisters, that we have. So I exhort you today to realize that, to contemplate, to think about, to never get over the gospel, to be amazed by it, to understand that is the power God has given us. It is my opinion, as I look around at Christianity in America, in the West, 
that is largely powerless. I don't know if that, if you share, that's my opinion. It's my opinion. It seems largely powerless. And that is why there is a, a gravitation towards the false teachers and they show them something. We have access to the power of God, brothers and sisters. It's the gospel. Our Lord and our God. Oh, Father, how we thank you, Lord, for the gospel. Oh, Father, it is the thing that by which we have first come to know our wretchedness. It is the means by which you have chosen, Lord, to wash us and to give us hearts that desire your goodness. Oh, Father, I pray that today, Lord, you would help to grow us, even if just a little bit, Father, in obedience to your word. Help us to believe, dear God, to believe biblically in the gospel, that it is the power that you've ordained to raise up and to debase nations, to save our loved ones, our relatives, to turn a world upside down, Father. We must believe it, Father. Help us and use us, dear God, ultimately for all, in all of this, for your name's sake, Lord, that the nations would recognize you, Father, and they would cry out in holy worship because you're worthy, dear God. Thank you for this time. Uh, thank you for your word, Father. Thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ. May we never, ever get over it, dear Lord. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.